Jesus, we thank you and we praise you for the work you did on our behalf on the cross, taking our sin, bearing our shame. When we come to you, the only thing we bring are our sins that need to be forgiven. And your promise is that you do not turn us away, but you make us Father, as we hear your word, your preached word, I pray that you tune our ears. We hear your voice and your Holy Spirit. Would your spirit blow through this place this morning as we make much of you. Father, fix our eyes on you. Fix the posture of our heart on you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Katie. <laughs> How can we be in a bad mood, right? Not that I am, but I'm just saying it. Well, good morning, Trinity. It is always a joy to be with you this morning. For those who I haven't met, my name is David. I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here at Trinity. We continue this morning our sermon series through the Gospel of Mark called Following Jesus looking at the life of Jesus, not only to see how the original disciples followed him and what that meant for them, but to see how we are to follow him and what that means to us. Now, a little bit of housekeeping. I am three weeks away, as many of you know, from my last material COVID symptom. Uh, I, was, um, I, I was, yes, praise Jesus for that, for sure. Uh, so, all that to say, uh, I do still have, when I get going, and I will, you may hear me cough once or twice, I will do my best to cough in a direction where no one is, but the viral load is so low, my antibody so high, I cannot give it, I cannot receive it, and so I just wanted to put that out there. I've got two bottles of water, and I'm not afraid to use them, all right? So let's jump in. Again, our scripture verses for today are Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. But before we get there, because this is so out of the ordinary for how I prefer to preach, I need to tell you guys a little bit about me. So I am native to this area. I was born in Beverly Hospital. I was raised in Beverly and Danville. My parents split up when I was one after the tragic death of my older sister. As a kid, I was very difficult. My mouth never stopped moving, and neither did my body. I got into all sorts of trouble. I don't know how many rulers Sister Mary Henrietta at St. Mary's in Beverly broke over me, but it was probably dozens. Letters home to my parents. As I grew up, all of that energy served me well in sports, but I fell into a very, uh, a lifestyle that was focused on status and popularity chasing girls and chasing money. I thought I knew everything. I knew nothing. After graduating from undergrad, I moved to South Beach, Miami for no reason other than to party. In 2006, my reaction to marrying into a family firm in their Christian faith was to spend the next two years trying to disprove the existence of God. I thought church, the bride of Christ, was a perfectly good waste of time on the weekends. I thought it was a joke. I 
have failed Jesus far more of my life than I've served him. I ran from him. I cursed him. I wanted nothing to do with him. I am totally unworthy and undeserving, and yet today I will stand before hundreds of you and plead with you to give your life to him. What happened? Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. The call of Christ on my life, the cost paid to follow him, and the change brought about by his power. And that is what I want to look at today. In Mark chapter 1, 14 through 20. And as we unpack these verses, I want us to deeply consider the call, the cost, and the change. You ready? All right, here we go. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. Would everybody please, as you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Verse 14. Now after John was arrested... Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. That is God's word for God's people. And everybody said, Amen. You may be seated. All right, now some more housekeeping. Verse 14. Who is John? Why was he arrested? Quickly, John, this is John the Baptizer. We heard from Pastor Kirk last week, going through the first 13 verses of chapter 1, that John was baptizing people in the wilderness, a baptism of repentance. And this John was prophesied, foretold, if you will, hundreds of years before Christ, that he would be the one that would come before the Messiah and prepare the hearts of the people for the Lord. His cousin, second cousin, I believe. Why was he arrested? Well, at that time, Jerusalem was occupied by Rome. It was under Roman rule. The Roman-appointed king in charge of that area was Herod Antipas. Roman-appointed, but of Jewish descent. Now, if you know anything about the Herodian line, this is a messed-up family. This guy married his niece who at the time was married to his half-brother, Herod Philip. All unlawful under Jewish law. And John the Baptist called him out on it and ended up in prison for it. We'll come back to John in a little bit. So, after John is arrested, Jesus comes to Galilee, which is the region north of Jerusalem. Nazareth, the birthplace of Jesus, is in Galilee. This region is to the immediate west of the Sea of Galilee, home to a robust fishing industry that exported fish all throughout the region. And he comes preaching the gospel. These are the words that Jesus begins his ministry with. Verse 15. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. 
Now, I bet you could preach a hundred sermons from that one sentence. I couldn't, but you could. I'll hit the highlights because this is not something that we can just gloss over. The time is fulfilled. Translated, this is God's perfect timing. The wait for the Messiah is over. The time, not Greek chronos, which is quantitative. What chronos is dinner? 6 p.m. Kairos, qualitative, the proper time for action. What action? The kingdom of God, literally translated as come near. Now this would be a year-long sermon plan. What is the kingdom of God? And Pastor Kirk was kind enough to send me something last week. I couldn't describe it any better than the opposite. Kingdom of God, among other things, is the rule and reign of God demonstrated and declared in all the world because of the work of Jesus Christ. The rule and reign of God demonstrated and declared in all the world because of the work of Jesus Christ. We think of a kingdom as a place, or at least I do. But the literal translation is royal power, kingship. And the author continues, one of the primary ways that God brings his kingdom on earth is through the transformed lives of his children. Isn't that beautiful? So the wait is over. The time is perfect. God's rule and dominion is here through Jesus and your transformation. And so turn from your sin and believe in can't believe I need to leave it there, (laughs) but for now, verses 16 through 20, this is really where I want to camp out today. As Jesus walks alongside the Sea of Galilee, he sees four men, Simon, who is Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and he says to them, verse 16, follow me and I will make you take a thousand words to unpack those 11 words. First, the call. The call of Christ is radical grace. It is radical. And I want us to understand this in two ways as it applies to our lives. I want us to understand that it is radical in function, how it works. And I want us to understand that it is radical in form, what it is. First, in function. You will not find this with any other teacher, any other prophet, any other sage, where the teacher picks the pupils, where the leader picks the followers, where the master picks the disciples. This is totally out of the ordinary. Back in those days, disciples would line up with their resumes to pursue well-known and influential teachers. And it wasn't so much a relationship as as it was a transfer of information and experiences so that the disciple could do likewise. But there was a one-strike rule. As soon as the apprentice screwed up, it was a sign to the teacher that he or she was not worthy. And the master would move on and pick someone else. Fun facts, but so what? Well, let me illustrate the point. 
Mike Gagne, Kevin Minahan, and Dan Donahue started running the Alpha course at Wenham House last year. And they were kind enough to invite me into it, or maybe I just showed up. I can't even remember which one. Both are plausible. For those that don't know, Alpha is kind of like Christianity 101, although it is far more robust than 101 sounds like. It's a series of 10 or so video sessions with some Q&A afterwards. The week after the videos were over, we decided to still meet at the Wenham House, have dinner with the guys, and just open it up to Q&A. All cards on the table, all questions welcome. And there was one guy there in particular that Dan had been pouring into, and you could tell that the Holy Spirit was knocking on the door of his heart. And it seemed to me at that dinner like this was the question that he was struggling with. This was the issue, the call of Jesus. Is Jesus really drawing me in? I don't know all the info. I don't have all the answers. And so I said to him, look, one night Jesus sat down with a member of the Jewish religious elite, a man by the name of Nicodemus. This is straight out of John's Gospel, chapter 3. Nicodemus had all the information. He had all the answers. But Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you cannot see. Forget participating. You can't even see the kingdom of God. So I asked my friend, what did you do to be born? And he gave the only right answer. Nothing. I said, exactly. If you even feel like you are drawing close to Jesus, that is the work of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Jesus chooses you. You do not choose Jesus. And God gave Dan the pleasure of praying with Jordan that very night as he surrendered his life to Jesus. And a week later, we baptized him here at Trinity. And as Simon Peter can attest to, as I can attest to, as Mike and Jordan and Kevin and Dan and each of you can attest to, there is no one-strike rule with Jesus. If it were, Simon Peter would have been the first to go. For even after seeing Jesus walk on water, raise the dead, water into wine, he stood beside the fire that night of Jesus' trial and denied him three times. But if you know the rest of the story, the resurrected Lord walked yet again on the shoreline of Peter's heart, calling him back into relationship, restoring him to ministry. And 40 days later, Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost, preached the first Christian sermon, and 3,000 people gave their life to Christ that day. The call of Christ is radical. It comes to the undeserving and does not cease even when we fail him. It's a personal call, which makes it relational. He meets you right where you're at, and he calls you by name. If you hear these words of Jesus and you feel your mind and your heart being stirred, it's not your doing. The resurrected Christ is walking along the coastline of your heart and calling out to you. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Repent. His call is radical in function, and it is radical in form. The foundation of the call of Christ is the gospel of God. 
the good news that Jesus, God himself, took on human flesh, lived the life that we could not, died the death that we deserved, and defeated sin and death by bursting from the grave three days later. And when we repent and believe, Jesus' perfect standing with God becomes our perfect standing with God. The funny thing is, is this word gospel, it's not a Christian word. Euangelion, back in those days, if you were conquered, if your nation was conquered by an opposing nation, you became the slaves of the conquering nation. The word picture of euangelion is of a messenger running from the battlefield back to his nation to deliver the good news that the war was won and they were free. They were not slaves. And so here we have the king of the universe, Jesus Christ, delivering the good news that his people in him, what once was slavery, is now freedom and life. That is what he calls us to. That is what he preached when he says repent and believe in the gospel. You cannot earn your salvation. Your resume is garbage. Your good works are filth, says scripture. And so are mine. And every other religion, every other worldview, every other belief system is advice at best that you have to follow. It's a battle you have to win if you want to be free from your desire or achieve nirvana or get to heaven. But the heartbeat of the call of Christ is the gospel of God. The good news that Jesus died in our place and even our belief in him is by grace through faith. The call literally comes to us as a free gift of God. You didn't choose him. He chose you. And he didn't choose you or me because we're so great, but because he is so great. The call of Jesus in the life of Peter and Andrew and James and John, it was relational, personal, and the foundation of it is the good news not our works, but his. Fantastic. This is great. I love this Jesus guy. He lived for me. He died for me. He chooses me. This guy's all right. What's so hard about following him? Point number two. The cost. This term, disciple, follower, apprentice, in Greek means one who studies and learns under a master so that they can grow into that role themselves and do as the master does. Their whole life is devoted to being with the master and doing as he wills. It is mentioned 269 times in the New Testament. Can anybody tell me how many times the word Christian is mentioned in the New Testament? It would have been inconceivable to the first disciples in the early church that one could be a Christian without truly following Jesus, without devoting your entire life to him. But I'm afraid it has become more of the norm in the Western church, the church that I'm a part of. We want Savior Jesus but we don't want Lord Jesus. 
Far too often, we treat Jesus like he is a Build-A-Bear. You know that store in the mall you can go to and you can create the stuffed animal that you desire? That's how we treat Jesus. I'll take a God that loves me just the way I am. Oh, he certainly doesn't try to change me. No, no, no. He affirms my desires. Oh, he doesn't ask too much of me. I just got to check a couple religious boxes. Money? Oh, he wants me to have tons of it. Comfort? Oh, he certainly wants me to be comfortable. He doesn't command anything of me. I'm more like helpful suggestions. He understands my mistakes. Let's not use that sin word. It's so judgy. My God actually needs me. Oh, he's just perfect. Oh, I get to name him? I think I'll call him Jesus. Now, I want to be as biblical and clear and compassionate as I can be with this. And although it's going to seem like I am diminishing us, my goal here is to magnify Jesus. Jesus does not need me. And he certainly does not need me. He needs nothing. Everything and everyone needs him. And we wouldn't want it any other way because the second you have a God that needs you is the second you no longer have a God. But even more than that, if Jesus had to go to the cross, if he had to, his sacrifice would first be characterized by duty and maybe then by love. But he didn't have to. God is under no obligation to forgive a sinner like me. In fact, he has more of an obligation to punish me because I'm the one that broke his law. But where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And at the cross of Christ, God's justice and mercy collide. Justice and wrath poured out on Christ so that God's mercy and love could come to a sinner like me. Jesus chose the cross. Not because he had to, but because he wanted to in total submission to the will of the Father. But a Christianity where Jesus is the only one who does the dying is unbiblical and is sending people to hell. Later on in Jesus' ministry, this is what he tells his disciples. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me for whoever saves his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. To take up your cross is a death march. Following Jesus is a call to die to yourself and to live for him and him alone. That's the cost. Your money, it's his. Your career, it's his. Your singlehood, his. Sexuality, his. Your career, his. Your family, his. Your dreams and desires and goals, his. Your life is his. Now, more Jesus, because I want you to see that this is not my opinion. This is reality. The gospel writer Luke records in chapter 14 that large crowds accompanied Jesus. 
but that's not a good translation. The Greek word symporomai, we would translate it better as hanging out with. Large crowds are just hanging out with Jesus. And so he turns to them and he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And a few sentences later, Jesus gets to the bottom line of the bottom line. Those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. Trinity. Are we a large, large crowd that just wants to hang out with Jesus? Do you want to hang out with Jesus? Do I? Or have we transferred all that we are all that we have to all that he is. Does our love for him dwarf our love for everything and everyone else? Not that we don't love our family or love our neighbors, but that our love for Jesus is infinitely more. There's no neutrality here. There's no such thing as a part-time disciple. John the Baptist was beheaded. Peter was crucified in Rome and not seeing himself fit to die in the way of his Lord, he was crucified upside down. Andrew was crucified, but like his older brother Peter, not seeing himself fit to die in the way of his Lord, his cross was shaped like an X. John the disciple was boiled alive. James was beheaded in Jerusalem. Following Jesus cost them everything. How did they do that? Why did they do that? Is that devotion even possible in my life? Yes. Because of the last thing. The Trinity. Follow me, Jesus says. And I will make you become fishers of men. When Jesus calls them, to stop casting their nets for fish and start casting the gospel for souls. He is not simply giving them a change of career. He is giving them a change of identity. And that change of identity is the only way to explain the change in those four fishermen. It's the only way to explain the change in the man you see before you. Or the brother I know is Dan Donahue. Or the sister I know is Anita Cunha, and Jordan, and Mike, and JJ, and Derek, and Kirk, and Matt, and Haley, and Juliet, and so many others. Saints that will join John and Andrew and Peter and James rejoicing in heaven forever. Jesus didn't say to them, I'm now accepting applications for discipleship. He didn't tell them to go clean up their act and schedule an interview. He didn't give them a test of theological knowledge. He didn't ask for character references or run background checks. He met them right where they were at, called them by name, commissioned them with his purpose, and changed 
who they were, not just what they did. There's no other explanation for their behavior or their ultimate sacrifice. Scripture says that anyone who comes to Christ is a new what? A new creation. The old is dead. Gone. The new has come. And that kind of change is what Jesus will do to every single one of us. If we give him the keys to our life. Let me give you even more encouragement than that. Jesus never asks us to do something he hasn't already done. Yes, John and James left their boats and left their father, but it was Jesus who left his throne and left his father in heaven. And yes, it should move us to action if our neighbor does not know Jesus, but it was first Jesus who was unwilling to watch creation separated from the Father. And yes, Jesus calls us to radical servant leadership, but it was Jesus who wrapped the apron around himself and washed the feet of the disciples. Jesus demands from us absolute surrender, but it was Jesus who was so committed to the will of the Father that he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus calls us to deny ourselves, but it was Jesus who first denied his glory. And on that cross, he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. If it feels like the rule and the reign of Jesus in your life is going to crush you, no, it will not, for it was Jesus who was crushed for you. He calls us to give him everything, but not before he gave everything for us. Far too long, I've diluted and diminished or flat out denied his calling, been unwilling to pay the price, or resisted the change he wants to bring about in me and through me, and I'm done. I'm done with it. I don't want that for myself, I don't want that for my family, and I don't want that for you. I don't want anybody at Trinity Evangelical Church to ever say that the kingdom of God will not advance in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our nation, or across the globe, because that is a lie from the pit of hell. Consider this an exhortation, or a charge, if you will, to the elders of this church, to us pastors, each leader, and everybody that calls Trinity home. We will see healings. We will see miracles. We will see chains break. We will see captives set free. We will see marriages strengthened, relationships restored, neighborhoods saved, rulers bend the knee, broken families mended, culture shifted, people redeemed, and lives changed. Not by playing it safe and staying in our boats, mending our nets. We will see the kingdom of God move in explosive power on the North Shore of Boston if, and only if, with all that we are and all that we have, we obey these two words of Jesus. Follow me. Let's pray.